Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we welcome Whitney and Nick Runyon, the co-founders of The Archibald Project. The Archibald Project produces stories that increase the the number of people who are caring for orphaned and vulnerable children. There are millions of orphaned and vulnerable children in the world, but getting involved and and caring for these kids can be a complex issue. There is a lot to consider. And that's why Whitney and Nick, collectively the Archibald Project, that's why their work is so important. They are creating stories and resources that provide people with encouragement and answers and support that they need to thrive in their helping. I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation because it turned a lot of my thinking on its head, especially as it pertains to how uh, helping is actually helpful. Uh, They'll make more sense of it in a moment. Here is Whitney and Nick Runyon. Whitney and Nick, I am so grateful that you're here and I want to get to the Archibald Project, which is, you know, what we're going to really talk about and, and the work that you all do with that. But I'm curious about life before the Archibald Project. And I know that that's a (laughs) massive question that takes you from birth to adulthood, (laughs) but I guess I'm just curious what, like, what preceded the project, what was going on in your life? Um, Yeah. And anybody can talk. I'm not going to call on people. You just (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, we'll try not to over talk over each other, but we tend to do that. But we might. (laughs) Well, it's so cute and endearing. You just go for it. (laughs) We are. We're adorable. (laughs) Um, So Nick was an airline pilot, actually, and I was a wedding photographer. And we'd been married for about four years at that point. Yeah, those are both cool jobs, though. I would like to talk about that for a half a second. Yeah, totally. Wedding photographer. Did you did did you like doing that? Yeah, I did. I loved it. That's an intense job. It's a lot of work. I really admire wedding photographers, and especially when bride and grooms don't have a wedding coordinator. Depending on your personality type, you often fall into coordinator because you've been around so many weddings, and the bride and groom are like, "We have no idea what we're doing." (laughs) So sometimes you end up running the show. (laughs) (laughs) I have officiated so many weddings, and I cannot tell you how many times the the photographer is basically saving the collective bacon of the the entire (laughs) bridal party. So it's awesome. And Nick, you were a pilot. Yeah, yeah, I was an airline pilot for oh, it's kind of murky now. I guess eight and a half years before the Archibald Project and. We did some work with the Archibald Project mixed into that time, but that was before we took it full-time. And then with the wedding photography, when I was flying, I was very young at the company at the time, and so uh, I would have to work weekends at first, and then eventually I could have weekends off. But then Whitney was working weekends if she was doing weddings, so she ended up teaching me photography so I could be her second shooter so we we could actually see each other and have a marriage And save money. And (laughs) save a little bit of money, yeah. So that was kind of where media started for me was through her. Yeah, Nick is an amazing filmmaker, but he does not have a background in filmmaking or storytelling whatsoever. How'd you know you could tell a story? Because it's one thing to be able to figure out how to operate a camera. It's quite another thing for you all to be able to do what you do, which is storytelling. How'd you know you could you could tell a good story? That's a really good question. Yeah, um, I think it was honestly out of necessity. Like we started out just doing photography and 
maybe a little bit of writing around the things we were doing, because we were doing it part-time, like maybe two or three times a year at the most. Yeah. If I had vacation from the airline, we would go on an international trip to document an adoption at first. Mm. But then we would use my flight benefits to uh, fly standby on these trips, so we didn't really have to fundraise mm. a lot of money to go on these trips. And so as we started doing photography, we would record a little bit of video with a GoPro or something at the time and would post it on Facebook or something. And we saw people really connected with it and loved it as terrible as it was hey, back then. Ouch. <laughs> I yeah. was the one editing back then. <laughs> it <was> not, right. <laughs> okay. It was not right. it was not quality. Right, right. Yeah. Right. It wasn't quality, but it had it was real. Yeah, compared to what you're doing now. So what what are the early inklings and of of the Archibald project, like how does this how does this start to come to be? Um, okay, so we we are of a Christian background, and I mm-hmm. really wanted to use my photography to just help people, and I had no idea how I wanted to help people, but I just kept praying, Lord, I want to use photography to help somebody, and then I felt an inkling, if you will, in my spirit, mm-hmm. telling me to reach out to an old acquaintance and ask if I could photograph her two-year-old daughter. And so I did, and the girl said yes. And so I'm on this photo shoot, and I'm just like, why am I here? Like, what is the purpose of this? This is so random. I had to drive to Houston, and I didn't feel like anything came to me in that moment. So I was like, okay, well, maybe I'm just supposed to give them free photos. And at the very end of the photo shoot, the mom said, or I asked the mom if they were going to have more children. And she was like, well, we're actually in the process of adopting. And it was like the clouds wow. parted and I felt like deep within me, you are supposed to go with them and photograph their adoption. And so I looked at her. I was like, I think I'm supposed to go to Bulgaria with you and photograph your adoption. She was like, uh, let me talk to my husband. And I was like, oh, yeah, let me talk to my husband, too. <laughs> but because Nick was an airline pilot, <laughs> we could do it. And so a few months later, we used his non-rev and we traveled with the dad to Bulgaria and we documented an adoption of a little... I think he was seven at the time. Six Eight. or seven. Little boy with Down syndrome. And we had hmm. never seen anything like that. I think we were in country like less than 48 hours. It was just this beautiful experience to be able to be with a dad going to adopt a little boy with Down syndrome. It was, it was just really beautiful. And so we came back. We put yeah. the pictures on Facebook. We Again, we had a little GoPro video of it. And then a few weeks later, a total stranger reached out and said, I just want to let you know that because of your photos, we found our son and we're now adopting a chronically ill child from the Ukraine. And if it hadn't been for your photos, we never would have found our son. And Nick and I were both very humbled by that. And we were like, holy cow, how we had no idea that like pictures and videos could inspire people to adopt. And so we were like, all right, well, you know, like, let's make this a thing and like use your non-rev full time or not full time, but like use your non-rev benefits when we can. In vacation time. right? In vacation time. Um, And so we started, we uh, got with a lawyer and we formed a legit 501c3 nonprofit and we named it after the little Bulgarian boy. His name is Archie, full name Archibald. And so we called it the Archibald Project. And then... um, yeah, we just kept doing it at part-time, and we were mainly doing international adoptions at that point. But then w- there was one trip. We went to Uganda with this awesome family, and they had such a beautiful story. But while we were there, we met a few other people, and we just mm-hmm. saw the complexities and the um, – or we started to see yeah, complexities we- and corruption around international mm-hmm. adoption. And so we started then – 
changing our language and focusing on like what is ethical holistic orphan care look like and how can we use stories for that and and i think within that you're right what we saw just how much more complex the issue was than adoption like it we saw how adoption was a symptom of a deeper problem and then we realized we needed to be highlighting and talking and educating people about way more than just adoption because most people had the depth of knowledge that we did when we started. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to, I do want to talk more about that because I, I was struck by um, just the, the material is that you really talk, uh, you, you make a very clear distinction between orphan care as opposed to adoption. And so I'm curious outside of adoption, what does that kind of care look like? Cause I don't think, I mean, I think generally someone listening to this in the West thinks the way to care for orphans is to adopt them and give them a lovely home, mm-hmm. which is not without merit, but obviously you all have been taking that just in your storytelling and in your understanding much deeper. So what does orphan care mean? Uh, it's That's such a big question and a good question because yeah. it really does <laughs> mean huge, so yeah. many things. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it changes, I'm sure you know, when you talk internationally versus yeah. domestically. Like there's yeah. there are things yeah. that overlap, but I think a lot of people generally when they think about orphan care, even that word, we think international. And so outside of adoption, one of the big things is just poverty in general is just a huge part of why kids are orphaned in the first place. There's things that happen within governments or laws or sickness or war, war mother mortality, the breakdown of the family. Mm -hmm. And so when we come in with our cameras, yes, we do have a doc. We have documented adoptions. But we also want to tell the stories of the people, like the locals working to um, care for, like it's like a, a, a daycare. So it's a free daycare for moms so that they can go to work and then hold a job while somebody takes care of their child safely. So they don't have to put their children in an orphanage to start with. Because we, we found in Uganda and we found all over the world really is 80% of kids living in orphanages mm-hmm. have one or more living parent. And usually, more times than not, if you find a child in an orphanage with a living parent or family member, they're not wanting that child to leave the country. They're not wanting that child to disappear forever. They love their children. It's just they are in such poverty or they had they got remarried and their new spouse um, doesn't want to care for that child anymore or mother died in childbirth, or there's a war and it's not safe, or they want their child to have an education, so they're viewing it more as a boarding school. There's just so many reasons why kids are in orphanages to begin with. So, like, we want to tell stories and inspire, not inspire, but educate people as to why kids are even in orphanages to begin with and how there are other ways to care for those children than just by internationally adopting them. Well, and internationally, I mean, the what makes it so hard is every situation, you know, every country is different Then you can get in one country and even different cities and down to different, different villages can be, have different problems of the reasons kids might be separated from their family. And so it's difficult to do, but really what you need to do is look at each individual kid and what they need if possible, because it might be something as simple as providing a safe home for one child, but then another child maybe has the home, but there's abusive relationships that it's not safe for that child to stay there. So then maybe that child could go live with other family, but maybe there is no other family. So then do they go into 
some sort of group home? Is that the best for them? And maybe that is for that child, but it's not the best for every child. And it's just, it's something that takes a lot of care, especially internationally in cultures that we don't fully understand and know. How do you navigate that? Because for families that want to adopt, and again, I realize I'm asking you massive sweeping questions, <laughs> but, <laughs> I, but, but, but like for families that want to adopt and genuinely feel like there is either like they're, they're called to that or just that's something that they've always cared deeply about, how, how do they not become a part of the corruption and the problem? Because they're half a world yeah. away. How, how can they, Absolutely. what are some, some ways to safeguard against that? Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. I actually want to do a mm -hmm. TED talk on this. So if you know anybody, let me know. But um, um, we amazing. have, we also have some things on our website that I can send you as well. But so just off the top of my head, bullet points, high level view. Number one, I would suggest or I would ask the people to really consider why they're moving towards international adoption versus domestic because we're we have like mm. over 400,000 kids in the U.S. foster system um, who could be adopted. But that doesn't mean that it's bad it's just, to adopt right. internationally. I'm not saying that. I mean, we have uh, right, like three no, internationally right. adopted kids. No, it's totally <laughs> well, it's just people can become very sensitive about that. And so I want to make but sure. But that's just my first point. I know. Sorry. Right. But well, it's a per it sounds to me like it's like the point to consider is yeah, not why, yeah. why, why wouldn't you? But, but, but like the, there seem to be a thousand hard questions that you really need to wrestle through when considering adoption. It seems like one of them is why domestic versus international, right? Because they're both valid. Mm -hmm. They both have pros and cons, I guess. They both have reasons behind them. So I guess the question is why, why not either? So because I think for people that sure. want to, because couldn't, couldn't the opposite be said about if someone is like, I am going to adopt a child domestically, isn't there also a great need internationally? Like, couldn't they be asking the question in the opposite or no? Does it mm -hmm. not work like yeah, that? Completely. Yeah. Okay. And, and I only bring that up because I feel like sometimes when you tell people you're adopting internationally, there's kind of this pushback that people kind of think mm. poorly. Like, why would you go and do that when there's all these kids here? And so I'm just saying we don't mean that question as a combative question, but more as a just with anything, like kind of just check your motives and be totally. aware of those in this process is all it, is all it is really. Yeah. Totally. Absolutely. Yep. That, that totally makes sense. So the first thing is kind of looking at like why, why choose international adoption in the first place, but then continuing mm -hmm. on from there, like saying they have some sort of good soul satisfying reason for why international versus domestic. How then do you, yeah, yeah begin, begin the process of, yeah, of so filtering. Yeah. First you need to find a, an agency you can trust here in America or wherever, whatever Western country or non-Western country you live in and say, we have a whole list of questions you can ask them. But I think the main thing is, is how do you ensure that the children you are adopting and the organizations are the homes that you are working in internationally? How do you know that those kids truly need to be adopted? How do you know mm -hmm. they can't be resettled back with family members in their own cities or villages? And do you make money per child that is brought over to the states? And do you get bonuses for if you get a certain amount of kids adopted? Things like that kind of can set off. Not they're just things to be aware right, of. Right, they can be a red totally. flag. They can be. Yeah, yeah. And then um, something that's really important to me is looking at individual homes. So 
if a big organ if a big adoption agency works with however many homes in the world internationally babies homes or adopt uh, orphanages say okay well i really want to adopt from uh congo we adopted from congo our story is very yeah. different than this though how it happened but right. um i would say okay i you know i really feel drawn towards congo what group homes do you have in congo and then you know if we talk about the group homes okay so can you give me a list of numbers of how many children have been resettled then have been internationally adopted from these homes and if oh. they can't, then I'm like, oh, wow. Then how do you know these kids need to be adopted? Like, what are the homes doing that you are working with and you are funding to get the kids back resettled with biological family? Because if 80% of them have one or more living parents, then why why would they need me to come in and take them out of their culture and put them in my family? Do you know what I mean? And so if I they do. can't show the yeah. numbers of kids that they are like homes that they're supporting family reunification and resettlement with, that to me, I wouldn't work with somebody like that. And that and that doesn't even necessarily mean they're corrupt right. per se, but they may not have checks and balances in place. Kind of like right. I think a lot of people call it gatekeeping. That as kids are coming in and being brought to the door of this home, is there anything set up that kind of vets why they're being dropped off? Because it could be something very simple that they could provide and then the kid is back with the family. But if there's no vetting process or gatekeeping, then you just have a influx of children coming in and probably some need to be there and some don't need to be there, but that's a really important step. Yeah, right. absolutely. And yeah. then um, knowing where your finances is going is really a big part of international adoption because there can be so mm. much corruption with money being sent over and misuse of funds. Um, but also once you're matched with a child and you have their story and their background, it doesn't stop there. You don't just believe what they send you. I would say if you know the town they're in or if you know the baby's home or the name of the orphanage, any information you have, Google the name of the orphanage in the city and the country and then go on Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram and find expats living in those cities and see if you can pay them and hire them to go kind of do some investigation or ask around for private investigators. Because there's so many private investigators and lawyers over there who wouldn't be attached financially to the gain of that international adoption who would be honest with you. So you right. can do your own private investigations internationally. People, th I feel like so many people are like, wait, what? You can do that? And it's like, yeah, absolutely. You just got to get creative <laughs> in how you find those right. people, which is why Facebook can be so great. Right. No, this is a, this is a world of you can be a pretty effective private investigator at this point. Um, yeah. Just and I, with and your I own would, laptop. And I was just going to I would add one more thing to that just as a caveat is just because a home or an organization either domestically or abroad has the word Christian on it does not mean that you can necessarily trust it. And maybe that sounds harsh, but it's just part of the experience that we've seen. Like you still have to, it's more work to try to be ethical in your international adoption, but in the long run, it's completely worth it so that someday if your kid is home and they start asking questions, you can say with a clear conscience, I did everything I could to make sure that this was the best for you. Yeah. And I will say there are people listening to this right now whose, you know, heart is probably sinking and going like, oh, did I... Did I, is this even possible to do this well? And the truth of the matter is there are a lot of international and domestic adoptions where this process is done well, and it's actually a beautiful thing. It's yeah. so 
So on the flip side of like, it can be really difficult. It seems like on the other side, it, it, it's, it, it really can be exactly what you just said, Nick, like you can be able to have that conversation with your child someday. Like, yes, we, to the fullest of our ability, we were able to, to research this. We understand here's the backstory and it's, and it's, it's ethical and you can stand behind that. So it is, it is possible. Um, Absolutely. So I want to get back just to the Archibald project because we kind of heard the origin story, but I'm struck by uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, that so much of, of what you're doing is storytelling, which makes sense with your backgrounds. But, but why is storytelling the, the medium for helping that you all have chosen? Why is it so effective? Why is it so powerful? Yeah, um, I, I think it kind of came about organically, kind of like what Whitney was saying with that first story. But we've stuck with that, I think, for a couple different reasons. One is when you look at a lot of different organizations that are helping kids, they are actually doing something for the kid directly, which is great and needed and beautiful. And then we realized part of the reason we'd been meeting people is because really everything we put out is for someone who else who's going to go do something for that child. Does that make sense? It does. Like one of our greatest obstacles to getting involved in foster care, in adoption, in caring for vulnerable vulnerable families so their kids can stay with them or helping out a struggling parent in America who has a drug addiction, but they need help to get back on their feet and get their kids back. The main obstacle is fear. And what helps overcome fear is not a bunch of stats and facts, but it's like a story and seeing someone else actually go do it and take that leap of faith. And when you see someone do that, and even if it's hard, if they make it, you're like, oh, I could do that too. Like I, I actually have the ability to do that myself. And so a story is a vehicle that inspires like nothing else that we found, especially in a space like this. It's like the snowball effect. It's where you start off small and then the more it keeps going down the mountain and uh, accumulating more snow as it goes, like it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the same with the story is like you can hear something and you can read stats, but when you see somebody doing something, you're then a picturing, can I do that? Could I, could I actually do that? And now you've got this seed planted and you're imagining now your life in a way that maybe you hadn't before you saw that physical story um, or heard the story. But also I think too is like we are – like the way we were made is we're artists. I mean Nick was a pilot, but like – I've always been in some type of art and creative world. And I think so often in in our world, we try to become somebody we're not and try to take on abilities and giftings that we just don't naturally have. And so you said, like, why storytelling? And I think that's just how we were made. Like, mm-hmm. I couldn't, I would be like, oh, you know, Doctors Without Borders is awesome, but I wasn't made to be a doctor. <laughs> I was made to be a storyteller. And so it wouldn't right. work if I tried to be somebody I wasn't. Right. And, and so that's, that's the real shift is that you, you went from, I mean, it's interesting to hear, I didn't know you were a wedding photographer and that you all kind of got into that business together because you get into capturing these beautiful, important moments as, as the job, right? Like this is what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. They pay you, you show up on a Saturday, you do your thing. But you, you've really moved this storytelling into a place of it's it, into into creating a movement and to creating lasting change in the world. 
um, which I think is just a fascinating way. It, it, the trajectory makes total sense once you hear like how the movement has happened. And so the, the question is, how have you seen change happen as a result of the stories that you all and the Archibald Project have been telling? Yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, one of my favorite things that I get to see is, well, one, I'll start by saying it is hard to track because, which is not a great thing for fundraising when you're doing advocacy. <laughs> it's really hard to track results sometimes, yeah. but, um, you know, cause sometimes people do something right away or we've had people tell us that their story played out over three to five years and how the stories right. of the Archibald project were yeah. a part of it, but we don't hear about it until the end. Or a lot of times we people don't, don't even it. take time to write and tell us, you know, cause we're, a, a piece of a story or a, a part of their story and their decision. But people do share with us sometimes and we hear about lots of new people getting involved in foster care or people that are now adopting or people who are now becoming respite care or girl, like college kids changing their major to social workers. Yeah, and I love when people say, I've been rocked by your media and I want to do something to help orphan care. Um, I changed my major to become like, a psychology major so that I can work with foster youth when I graduate and like help them mentally. And it's like, oh my gosh, that is so yeah. cool. Yeah. Or like one family was saying, hey, we were on an international adoption trajectory. And because of some of your films, we decided that we were not going to adopt internationally, but we were going to sponsor this org or support financially support this organization overseas who are keeping kids with their biological families. And we're like, that's awesome, yeah. too. Or then another family's like, hey, we're adopting a sibling group because we saw this story and internationally. And it's like, yeah, there's just so many different things that are coming from it that it's really, really humbling. That well, also keeps us going to keep us doing it because it's hard. And, and one of the things that I see over and over that is so cool is speaking to the movement like you were talking about, Eddie, is yeah. a, someone will write us or um, say, hey, we we fostered because of the Archibald Project and because of this story or this podcast or this video, whatever. And now we've been doing that and about five or six of our friends now who are in our community are also doing that now or getting involved in some way because they are watching us do it and have now been inspired. And so it creates that movement like you're talking about that just compounds on itself. Yeah. I, I, I think that one of the, I was really impressed by when I was looking at the results and how you all have tracked the last year of what you shared that someone decided not to adopt. And that's not to say not adopting is the end goal, but I was struck by the fact that with all of the results that the Archibald Project has, you are really forcing people to look deeply at this. And for some people, it's a change in major. For some people, they decide to adopt. For some people, they decide not to adopt. But it is exactly—it it is really like we, we're not going to just take this as like, it's a social fad. My favorite author told me to do this. Like, like <laughs> yeah. right? right? And, I, and I'm not dogging it, but it's just like, hey, this is serious. This is a human being. This is a family. This is a life. We're going to look seriously at this. And you all literally put a spotlight on that. Um, mm, I, I wanted to talk uh, in our last moments about a few kind of specific things. The first is we have heard over and over again on this show, and it's been unprovoked, um, that the when I ask people, you know, how, how did you get into activism? And one of the things they say over and over is, 
by traveling the world. Just get outside mm. of your house. Now, of course, we're talking in the midst of a pandemic where we're all locked inside. But in theory, yeah, right. we, will, we will get in airplanes again and go and see the world. And so obviously, this is a leading question. But you all have traveled the world more than most people, uh, period. What has How has it changed your perspective on the world and changed your perspective on orphan care as you have been around the planet uh, documenting mm. this? I think for me, it was just realizing how much we base opinions on experience. And when our experience is really small, it's easy to think that we have things figured out. And over and over when I've traveled, I've been just absolutely humbled to my core about like, oh, I thought I knew about this and how it worked and what was the answer. And I actually don't have a clue. <laughs> and I need to... Mm take some time to not just like push forward harder, but I need to like sit and wrestle with this and travel has done that to me, especially. And I think Whitney would agree yeah. in not just realms of orphan care, but in, uh, religion in um, relationships. relationships, just every, every aspect of life. It changes you. I think. Yeah. I think too, we, we get so we get tunnel vision. We get so focused yeah. on ourselves and our lives as human beings. That's normal, right? Mm -hmm. That's everywhere. But getting outside of your own bubble just helps you really realize a how small you are in the world, um, but just how complex life is and how like hard things are. Um, it made me view suffering and pain just very differently than I had pre traveling the world mm. um and just realizing how like privileged we are in the west and how blessed and fortunate we are and how many like how much we actually do have yeah i think it's changed the way we live completely well and and on top of that too like it's it's almost disheartening to myself sometimes how easily I come back home and fall right back into my old things that i would complain about and so we're yeah. all susceptible to that and it's such a privilege that we've even been able to travel as yeah, much as we have we absolutely. like not everybody has that luxury right. i just think that in general it's it's really good to be aware that you may not have all the answers and yeah. i've just that's just been proven to me over and over as I've traveled and met different people from different backgrounds and cultures. For someone who is listening to this that has no, they're, they're not even thinking about adoption. They're not thinking about foster care. They're, they're, you know, they're 22 years old. They're in school. They're just, but they know that they would like to be able to help the orphans in the world. What, what would you offer them as a first step? And actually I'll help you out. The first thing is go to the Archibald project link is in the bio, all of this <laughs> stuff. But I mean, truly like support organizations that are doing great work. You all are doing incredible work and there are ways tangibly that they can support you all and come alongside the work. And that really, really matters. So in addition to that, what, what would you offer as first steps for people to be able to, uh, kind of respond with this energy they're feeling? Um, I, that's a big question too. I would say um, education is really, really important. So yeah. a lot of people see something and they get inspired and that's good. And I know that's pure, but then they just decide to go act and do without learning the culture, learning mm. their why, learning um, ethics, learning in, in that specific situation or country. 
Um, and then I would say, I would, uh, this could sound bad, but if you're going internationally to help, I would question, are you, do you, are you really going to help? Like oh, you yeah. are, you're an American, which is, I'm an American. I don't think that when I get on a plane and go somewhere internationally that I am going to be this like amazing help to the people on ground there, right? Like I am going into their culture. And so I would just say, if you're going to go somewhere or in, in the future, if you're going to go somewhere, go right. knowing you are going to serve people who are already doing something and they know what they're doing and just have your like listening ears on and be ready to do what they need you to do, not what you think needs to be done. Is that, does that sound like a downer answer? No, it's it not a sense. downer. I appreciate the honest, <laughs> no, but I appreciate the honesty you brought to the whole conversation because there is a lot of pie in the sky <laughs> thinking with this. And I think it's really important to be very honest about it because if they can answer that question, here's why I'm going here, you know, like if they can answer it and then they are able to go with that right heart and mind orientation, mm -hmm. I mean, that's game changing. Absolutely. So anyhow, Nick, I feel like I interrupted, please. No, no, no. You, I would just echo what Whitney said on that point, especially is just find somebody who's already there and who has been there and can kind of mentor you through it. Like we, we tend to think we can go do anything, which is awesome and is why we do so many things as Americans. And when we're in our twenties and stuff, we, that's part of why we are doing the Archibald project today, but there is so right. much wisdom from other people that have already been doing it. Uh, and then also just to that person out there that doesn't know what to do. And yeah, we talk about education, but a big part of that is just seeing all the different options. Cause yeah. We tend to get tunnel vision about adoption or foster care are the main two ways to help vulnerable children. And they're huge and awesome ways, but there's so many other big and small ways that make such a huge difference. And you don't have to feel like you've got to do something as massively life-changing as that to make a difference. And maybe it'll yeah. come your way someday, but like the college student can get certified to babysit for someone's foster kids and just giving parents a break is such a huge way to serve and, or even like there's things that bio families that maybe had to place their kids in foster care for a bit, just need help and support with physical items that you could help provide from an Amazon wish list or mm -hmm. things like that. Or you can go volunteer your time for an organization overseas, or you can sponsor kids' education. Education is huge. I mean, there's just so many different things you can do. And so get, get a picture of that and then you can choose what speaks to you the most and fits you and your personality that's huge what fits you like don't if you're a stone don't try to become a tree because <laughs> you think that's what you're supposed to do just like be a stone <laughs> well and your Does examples that of that right your storytellers yeah. <laughs> and how are we going to tell how are we going to tell stories right you're not trying to do something you're not you are artists and so how will we use our art to influence this other thing that we care deeply about Well, I am deeply grateful to Whitney and Nick for their time, for their expertise, for their storytelling and activism, and also just for the practical advice for how we can actually be helpful in caring for orphaned and vulnerable children of the world. To find out more about the Archibald Project, which you should and definitely give and support them and pay attention to their storytelling and social, their website is thearchibaldproject.com and a link to that is in the show notes. Thank you, as always, to Propaganda for scoring today's episode. 
All of his music, merch, etc., can be found on prophiphop.com, as well as on Twitter at prophiphop. He also has a few podcasts that you should be listening to. Just head to his Twitter for the latest and make sure that you are keeping up with our friend Propaganda. Of course, the conversation that has begun here will continue over on The New Activist, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those have the same handle, New Activist Is, one word. And we have a website, same one, newactivist.is. One last thing, if you have a moment and you are new to the show and you haven't done this yet, rating and reviewing the show is a great way for others to continue to hear the stories and conversations that are happening on The New Activist. First, new folks listening, thank you for being here. Also, head over to iTunes, give us five stars, let us know who you'd like to see on the show. We read every single one of those reviews and it means a great deal. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of the Archibald Project, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends.